So I have a important question to ask in 18 minutes or less, and that is, how do you solve the world's most pressing issues? And I know it sounds like a big question that you couldn't possibly try to answer in 18 minutes or less, but to be honest, it actually has a pretty simple answer. And the answer really relates to an increase in generosity. So in the United States alone, last year, philanthropic giving came in at over $400 billion dollars. And it's a lot of money. It's twice the size of the U.S. airline industry pre-COVID. <clears throat> and the average American, about 56% of Americans actually make philanthropic gifts, and they give 2% of their income to charity. So just a 1% increase from those that make gifts would equal $200 billion a year to address some of the world's most pressing challenges. And we know that nonprofit organizations and corporations and foundations and government entities work tirelessly every day to alleviate poverty and, and really support humanity's greatest needs, but it's not enough. And it has to come uh, in a form of more money, but not just any kind of money. It's not gonna come from governments, it's not gonna from, come from corporations, it has to come from you and I. So this idea that you and I could alleviate some of the world's most pressing issues by giving 1% our, giving more of our income is pretty compelling. I think most people would agree, like if I could alleviate poverty or hunger, I could do that with just giving up 1%. But it turns out the notion of giving 1% more of your money or asking others to follow is extremely challenging. It's something that's actually been debated since the beginning of Western civilization. Aristotle actually talked about this in detail and, and said it best. He said, to give away money is an easy matter and in anyone's power, but to decide whom to give it and how large and when, for what purpose and how to give it, is neither in every individual's power nor is it an easy matter. So these issues that Aristotle brings up, I've kind of coined the phrase the Aristotle barriers, that if any one of those barriers gets in the way of this idea that I can make a difference to actually giving and, and writing a check or making a donation, you won't give. So I've been in the nonprofit sector for 20 years and really fascinated around this idea of why some people give more and why some people give less. But really when it comes down to it, for the first time in history, there's enough data and tools, meaning artificial intelligent tools, that can actually, for the first time, overcome these Aristotle barriers. And it's a pretty remarkable time in our history. So we first have to ask ourselves, why do some people follow and some people don't? So Henry Nouwen, who we all know and love, says this, fundraising is proclaiming what we believe in such a way that we offer other people an opportunity to participate in our vision or mission. Super simple, we can cast our vision to the world and it can be a really compelling vision or mission, but we also know that's only a fragment of people that will come follow us. So while the act of fundraising is very easy, getting to the right people to follow you is actually very difficult. So in my time in the nonprofit sector, I've been really fortunate to gather a team of data scientists and statisticians to really look at the underpinnings and the motivations of generosity and how can organizations find individuals that are more likely to give than not? And it turns out, like you'd think, it's a very squishy topic. This, this idea of all the decisions that, are, that come into my mind of how I align with an organization or not, it's really hard to quantify. But we set on this path a few years ago to essentially decode generosity using machine learning. And what we found at the highest level is that generosity is an outward expression of a visceral reaction. And it's that visceral reaction that is actually so hard to quantify. 
because you associate yourself, your past, present, and also how you identify in the future with giving or not giving. It's the confluence of your upbringing and your influences and your experiences, both in the past and real time, that really get you to a point where you will likely make a gift. Now, in the study, and we were going through all the data around giving and where, it, where it's doing well and where it's doing bad, there was some really discouraging news uh, and data that we found in the United States in particular. And that really surrounds itself around the idea that America is becoming less generous. And I'll talk more about this in a little bit, but the data is pretty telling in this fact that people and the average American is actually giving less and less each year. So it turns out that giving as a whole is 2.1% of the GDP. And it sounds like a lot because it's $400 billion, like I just told you, and it is a lot of money. But if you look at the trajectory of giving over the last 40 years, it's remained pinned at 2.1% of the GDP. So even advances like social media and the internet didn't change giving at all. Uh, increases in the economy, decreases in the economy didn't change at all. 2.1% is where generosity is pinned. Now, you could argue, well, how is that bad news? And it, it, it actually sounds like people are still giving no matter what's happening, so it could be a positive thing. But it turns out the underlying data is what's concerning, that the average American, the middle and lower class, are tending to give less and less each year. And this is a really big, big shift in the last 10 to 15 years that they're withdrawing from this act of generosity. So then you have to ask yourself, well, how is philanthropy staying on par with the GDP? How is it still 2.1% if all these individuals are giving less? And it turns out it's, there's a huge disparity of wealth in our nation that everyone knows. And ultra high net worth individuals, i.e. billionaires, are giving enormous gifts, not like anything ever seen before, really since Rockefeller and Carnegie, and hundreds of millions of dollars. And those gifts in itself are masking this issue and is masked for about 10, 15 years, this idea that the average donor is actually giving less and less. So it's pretty concerning. Now, in religion, this is of particular importance because religion accounts for 30% of all giving. So actually, religion has the most to lose from just a piece of the pie. But the worst part is actually ultra high net worth individuals very seldom give to religious causes for a variety of different social reasons and public reasons. So religion actually has the most to lose in this entire scheme. So we started asking and, and debating why this is happening. Why are people giving less and trying to figure out the root cause of that? And there's a lot of popular debate about tax code changes. So people in the, in the political world will say it's because this party disincentivizes me from you know, making these gifts. Or, and it actually hasn't really been proven. It hasn't been that big of a swing in terms of people itemizing deductions or not. Uh, the other popular debate is around this crowding out effect. And it's this idea that if I'm really passionate about curing polio, but Bill Gates is already on the, on the mission to cure polio, that my gift is really not essential or needed in the same way it was before. And that plays into it a little bit uh, as well. And it's something that uh, has to be looked at. But the data is extremely clear. The tie to generosity and association with religion is directly linked. And I'll share some data in a few minutes to, to go over that. But this disassociation of religion that we've experienced in our nation has a direct correlation to essentially the generosity of, of America. But if we want to reverse this trend, and I believe we can, we have to look at really, again, this, the underpinnings of where this generosity is coming from to try to activate that. And really, this comes from three key domains in your life. It comes from this emotional domain, it comes from a rational domain, and it comes from a financial domain. So there's three kind of big um, 
areas of your life have to come together for you to be inspired enough to make a give a gift. The emotional part is actually a bit straightforward. You've all been in the situation where you're watching TV and a commercial comes on and there's puppies that are behind cages and bars and slow motion and Sarah McLaughlin music playing in the background. And, and you just, I mean, you're a dog person, so you just can't imagine these puppies being put to sleep if I don't make a $50 gift. So you grab your phone, you make a gift. That, that, that is strictly emotional. Those are, those are those ties that, you know, pull on your heartstrings and you make a gift. The rational is a little bit different. The rational influences are how you associate your values with an organization. Do you align with an organization? Uh, have you requested information from them before? Have you attended an event? Or have your friends attended an event? How will you, your peer group look at you if you associate with that uh, organization or don't associate you with, with that organization? So the rational is a bit more data-centric from an institutional perspective, but it plays a really, really significant part. Now, the interesting thing is that through our data, most people assume that your financial capability is what one of the biggest drivers is of you making a gift. And it actually is the least important. In fact, middle and low class donors actually uh, or individuals give more as a percentage of their income than ultra high net worth individuals. And it turns out that your financial position is only about 10 percent influential in whether or not you're altruistic. Now, it's important in the sense that it it guides you into how large of a gift you might make, but it's really not very influential in terms of whether or not you'll make a gift in the first place. So if we look at data in all those three domains, the emotional, the rational, and the financial, we started collecting lots and lots of data on Americans in general, those that give and those that don't give. And there's around, give or take, 2,000 data points on every adult in America that can be harvested in public domain at this point. We went through all of them, we ran all of them, tested all of them, and found about 150 to 200 variables in total speak to whether or not you're altruistic by nature, whether or not you're just inclined, you're part of that 56% club that make gifts. So if you take those 150 to 200 data points and you put them in a machine learning algorithm, which we did, we built several AI algorithms over the last four years to do this and to predict how likely someone is to make a gift in a certain time period, it looks something like this. Now, this is a random forest example, and we use lots of different AI algorithms to do this. But mathematically speaking, with about 150 to 200 data points, you have to run 10,000 calculations per person to determine whether or not they're likely to make a gift. So it's a lot of calculations. And again, this is the first time in history this could be done in any affordable way that you could conceivably run 10,000 calculations per person in real time. Because the reality is that like anything you're in your life, it changes. So you can't run a model and say, you're likely to make a gift, you're not. It's not a yes or no answer. It's where are you at on a continuum of being likely to make a gift to a particular organization or not. And as your experiences change, as your influences change, as friends make gifts or uh, your family members make gifts, or you get information that persuades you, that your, your likelihood to make a gift actually changes. So it has to be rerun in this calculation. So again, the machine learning has this ability to continue to learn, to run literally 24 seven to keep up with your preferences and your likelihood to actually make a gift. Now, it, there's a lot of math obviously behind this, but a really easy example to really understand this concretely is the, the college and university example, which most of us can relate to. So, the, the colleges kind of universities look at students in two key ways, you know, wide-eyed freshmen come in and essentially they're consumers. There's a financial transaction 
that occurs for a period of four years or for some of us, five years, um, no judging, um, but, but it's a financial transaction. You, you know, the, the transaction is you pay and you learn and then you'll receive a diploma. As soon as that financial transaction is over and you cross the podium and you receive your diploma, you are now considered a prospective donor. You're, you're considered by that university as someone that should be grateful for the experiences that you had that you'd likely want to make a gift um, to, to the university. Now, it's extremely flawed logic because what happens is that there are some students that had incredible experiences. They resonate deeply with that university or that college and others that don't at all. Those that resonate more deeply are the ones that are likely to make gifts and, and do other things and support and be an ambassador. And those that did not have a good experience won't. So universities are kind of this petri dish of data because for four years, you're this captive audience and they collect data on everything, including how many meals you had and uh, I mean, what grades you got, all, all these data points. So in our research, we actually found that there are some very telling data points as whether or not someone is going to make a gift to a university. And it, it does relate to things like how long did it take you to graduate? Did you live on campus or were you a commuter student? Uh, did you pledge? Did, how many football games? Uh, literally the quantity of how many sporting events did you attend because you swiped your ticket when you went in? All the way down to how often did you go to the bookstore and buy a, a school sweatshirt with the logo on it? So all those data points speak to a person that's hyper-engaged. They resonate deeply with this organization because they're all in. It's their, their peer group. It's they, you know, they're going to donate even before they graduate, but they'll continue uh, giving after. And those are the people that the university could call on at any time to say, hey, we need leadership in this area. Will you help us out? And you'll say, of course, I'm all in. Will you tutor uh, or, or help uh, mentor incoming students? Of course, I'll do that. Conversely, the other person that graduated the same day and the university looks at the same is, you know, took them five years to graduate. Frankly, their parents never thought they were actually going to make it, but somehow they did, you know, straight C's and maybe a couple D's in there. They worked through college, so they never actually went to a sporting event, didn't really have any of those experiences. And their major probably wasn't something that was taken seriously on campus anyway. And frankly, what really ticked them off is that when they were told to get their diploma, they had to pay the 12 unpaid parking tickets they had. They were basically like, you know, I'm done. I'm never supporting this, this university ever again. So there's a, a really easy way to, if you see that there's no such thing as an unhappy student or happy student, that every student is on a continuum of unhappy to happy. And that also changes as your experiences and your influences change as well. So how this relates to the church is almost exactly the same way. Now, churches have been gathering data for a very long time and not as much as the Petri dish of the university example, but donation history and volunteer records, uh, milestones like confirmations and baptism. And in fact, at my church, we actually track through uh, an app every time someone attends a Bible study. All of that data is, is very telling us in terms of who's engaged and not engaged. And, you know, aside from your social media data, because if you check in while you're at church or you share that you're at church or, or that you're doing things with the church, all of that data combined can actually allow church leadership to see a congregation not as a one uh, body of congregation, but as individuals that are on a path from unengaged to engage. And so some that are hyper-engaged, the data will tell you they're hyper-engaged. And those are individuals, of course, that give regularly, but they also are the first ones to raise their hand when there's a volunteer need or uh, an opportunity to, to mentor someone. So in the same way, uh, church leadership can call on those individuals to help support those that are less engaged. 
And those less engaged also attend regularly, but just on Christmas and Easter, and their giving shows it. But they are on a different path, and they definitely could use support from those that are more engaged, but also from church leadership who can now tailor and specify outreach to individuals that may be uh, struggling or just not, not quite there yet. So instead of trying to cast this vision to everyone, the idea is to tailor this vision and the approach to the individual um, where they're at in their journey. So religion has this en- enormous doubling effect when it comes to generosity. In fact, it's the only place that generosity could be scaled in all domains. And when we were looking through the data, it was just incredibly telling. So any person that affiliates with any religion is 16% more likely to make a gift anywhere than someone who's not. So the church is definitely doing something right. So it's this idea that you know, people that are associating, they're learning with religion, uh, the, they're learning the virtues and values of giving back. And that's really so important. But the real uh, startling data around this is that any person who associates with any religion gives twice as much as someone who does not. So not only are they taught to be more altruistic, but they're actually multiplying the amount that they give. And that plays uh, an impact in generosity in religion and outside as they make gifts elsewhere as well. So the idea of, of looking at fundraising as something we have to do versus something we want to do is something that I think is absolutely critical for the church to do right now. Churches have to decide if fundraising is something that we do one time a year in a certain way because we have to and we have to check the box and get it done versus it about training a more generous world and actually engaging people through all forms of ministry to become more generous. Because if we want to solve the world's most pressing issues, it has to come from an increased generosity. And practically speaking, the only way that we can increase generosity in this nation is through the church. Thank you.